for me, it's a pleasure to take time to talk to people who are thoughtful, sophisticated, nuanced, and committed to this work with new ideas and energy and creativity and lawyerly smarts to advance the ball. A statistic that has haunted me for over six years is that one in five households in Libya has had a person disappeared. What does it mean to be disappeared? How does it impact on the person who is disappeared, his family, the wider community? In this episode, we take a moment to look more deeply into enforced disappearance, a violation and crime that has been in Libya since the 1980s and has become so prominent lately, how it works and how it impacts those affected. We are privileged to be able to do this with Jabir Zain, a survivor of enforced disappearance and torture, and now a most incredible advocate for the rights of those impacted by enforced disappearance and for the need to seek accountability. A warning before we start. This episode contains descriptions of human rights violations, including enforced disappearance and torture. It may not be appropriate for all listeners. Please take care while listening and do skip it if you think it may be distressing. If you have been affected by any of the issues discussed in this episode and want to seek help, please contact us on accountability at libyanjustice.org. If you do decide to listen, enjoy the episode. Welcome back to Libya Matters. Uh, I'm Ilham Saudi. This episode is a little bit different. First of all, I have a new co-host. He's new to Libya Matters, but still an LFJLer. Mohammed is one of our awesome lawyers. Welcome to Libya Matters, Mohammed. How are you feeling? Thank you, Ilham. I'm very excited to be part of Libya Matters podcast. The other new thing we're doing is we're, we're delving into a specific human rights violation in this episode. We've not really done that before. This is because this is a very prominent violation that we see and has such far-reaching consequences. I'm talking about enforced disappearances. And as one of the leads on our enforced disappearances project, Mohammed is one of the best people to help us navigate this. Let us start, Mohammed, by explaining briefly what we mean by enforced disappearances and how does it really differ from kidnapping? Enforced disappearances is a state crime. So the state element has to exist in uh, this crime. Um, I mean here the state or groups acting on behalf of the state has to be involved in disappearing the individual. Usually this is followed by the state or their militias denying any knowledge of the disappeared or that they are or the disappeared is in their custody and or concealing any information about the fate of the individual. If we go back to Libya under Gaddafi, just to elaborate more on the fate or concealing information about the fate of the disappeared, under Gaddafi there were hundreds of people disappeared in Abu Slim prison by the Libyan state. Um, many families were aware through their informal contacts that their loved ones are in Abu Slim prison. However, the state officially denied and refused to give any information to the families about the fate of uh, their families. So even if the family has information about that their loved ones is in detention, the state has to acknowledge. And if they don't acknowledge, then this is still enforced appearances, whether the family know informally or not. Usually what happens in Libya today after the 2011 uprising, uh, the state or their affiliated militias abduct people from their homes or from streets and place them in secret detentions and they deny that they are holding the disappeared and they place them outside of the protection of the law, meaning that they don't have access to lawyers or family and they are deprived from any judicial oversight. 
This is for enforced appearance. How this is different from kidnapping? Kidnapping doesn't have the state element. And also kidnapping and enforced appearances has different purposes. So for kidnapping, it could be for ransom, financial gains, revenge. But enforced appearances, usually the purpose behind it is because of the real or perceived political affiliation of the disappeared or because of their tribal links and origins in Libya. So if we think about it, disappearing is actually just literally disappearing a person, right? Taking them away removing them from any knowledge to their loved ones. They just no longer exist for the purposes of well, all practical purposes, basically. Right. So that's what we're talking about. It's the fact that someone was here one day and they're gone the next day. And we either we don't know their whereabouts or we might know their whereabouts, but we don't know what's going to happen to them. Are they going to be released? Are they going to stay alive? Or what, what the situation is? Uh, more or less. Yes. In the context of Libya today, of course, it's very um, it's very challenging because there are the Libyan state and also militias. So the militia has to be linked to the state. But how do I prove this? It's challenging. But the positive thing is that the information in Libya is available. So I would take this to an example that of a case of a young man that we were, we were working on um, earlier this year. And we couldn't, and it's concerned the El-Suwahli uh, militia. And we couldn't find any um, information about whether this militia is supported or authorized by the state. However, the evidence that we could gather and after research, and this is where I mentioned that the information is available, that we found official decrees from the Government of National Accord promoting the head of a Sawahli militia from lieutenant to general. So this is the kind of evidence that we look for to prove this link. That's really interesting because if we think back to the sort of traditional understanding of what um, enforced disappearances are, we had that in in Libya in the 80s very clearly under Gaddafi where, you know, people would be picked up from the streets, even, you know, not even just in Libya, but in, in European capitals and in other countries. And we would have we would not know what happened to them, but we would get a feeling that at least we knew it's in Mukhabarat or something that has to do with the state. So you can define the state element. Uh, very clearly, but now there's a little bit more detective work to be done to establish the link between the state and the the entity that's done the disappearing or um, or the deten- or the detention. And it's interesting that you say that that you know there's different ways to pursue these entities. You can either look at a, a very clear situation where there's a document that promotes someone, so you have a very clear link between the state and the armed crew concerned. But in other times, we have to also just follow the money trail, right? To see, you know, who funds these militias. And in the situation in Libya, all of a sudden that becomes quite more straightforward to make the link between an armed group in the state because quite a few of them are funded or are paid for by by the state. That's right. Um, because, yeah, if we look at the context in Libya, uh, most of the militias uh, that are linked to the, to the state are supported by the state because they are paid and they are authorized by the state because they were incorporated incorporated under different security apparatus, uh, say the judicial police or the Ministry of Defense or uh, Interior. What I found, it's hard to find, to to prove the link or that these militias are paid uh, by the Libyan state or the decisions incorporating these militias under the security apparatuses. So there are always other ways that we can try to find to prove this link. And it could be by promotion decrees, official promotion decrees, or it could be by the stamps of the uh, militia. Sometimes it's, say, for instance, Sawahli uh, uh, Brigade and then uh, Ministry of Defense. So there are many ways that we can use to prove
remove this link. But usually going for the because usually, but usually going for the incorporation of these militias under the security apparatuses or that they are paid by the Libyan state, usually the Libyan state doesn't reveal that kind of information. We are not usually able to get this evidence. And I guess if we just take a step back and think about how this um, violation started or where this comes from, uh, traditionally enforced disappearances really meant that the person was disappeared. They never returned. It was a, it was a permanent disappearance. And, and here I'm thinking probably most prominently of Argentina and Algeria um, in the last century where people were here one day and then gone and never to be heard from. And, you know, decades later, their families are still trying to determine what happened to them. Maybe, Mohammed, you can just talk us a little bit about the history behind enforced disappearances. Yes, and this is and this is a very good example. Um, perhaps the best known instance of mass enforced appearances in Latin America and in the in the twentieth century during the military dictator in Argentina, and this was between nineteen seventy six and nineteen eighty three. So in this context, the security forces abducted around thirty thousand people, many of whom are still until now not accounted for. This was a widespread pattern in Latin America in in general. And it's usually linked with other serious violations like torture and then followed sometimes by extrajudicial executions. The Argentinian authorities at that time and the security forces, they even killed people. They subjected them to enforced appearance and then they killed them by dropping them from planes and helicopters. And these were called the death flights. But what really helps after the military dictatorship ended is that there was this body that was responsible for the registration of all those people that were subjected to enforced appearance. And this actually helped later when there were trials of those responsible. Like we discussed in, you know, in, in Libya, enforced disappearance is, is, is unfortunately not a new phenomenon and it was very systematically applied during the Gaddafi regime, you know, even disappearing people outside the country. So I'm, yeah, I'm thinking here specifically of the 1980s where, you know, even in London, where, where we are at the moment, we saw people being... Um, just taken off the street and never to be heard of again. Um, so where are we now with, with enforced disappearances in Libya? What's the patterns we're seeing in, in the Libyan context? Yes, that's right. Under Gaddafi, there were thousands subjected to enforced appearances. And maybe the most well-known case is the case of Jaballa Matar, who is Hisham's mother, uh, father. He was actually abducted from uh, Cairo and then transferred secretly to uh, Libya, and he was never heard of again since then. But now the context is different because, of course, after the uh, Libyan uprising in 2011, and all the militias and armed groups that started to appear since 2011 have committed serious violations, including uh, enforced appearances. I'm thinking of the example, for instance, of uh, the Tawarga. Enforced appearances and other serious violations against the Tawarga were widespread and systematic. Um, Tawarga were targeted because of their color, because they are uh, black-skinned, and because also they are perceived as loyal to the former Gaddafi regime. There is also other examples of people being targeted because of their perceived or real political opinion. So, for example, we have the case of uh, Siham Sergewa, who was abducted from her home in 2019, and until now we don't have any information about her. It is believed that militias linked to the government in the East and to Haftar militias who carried out this abduction because she was against the military offensive on Tripoli and she called for the formation of a civil state. We're painting a very, very dark picture here. And so perhaps 
we can just try to think a little bit about, you know, how do we start tackling this? Does does Libya even recognize enforced disappearance as a, as a crime? Is it signed up to any of the treaties that we need it to be signed up for to be able to pursue accountability for this? And the thing I keep thinking, actually, the more I the more work we do on enforced disappearance and the more we think about even think about it conceptually, proving it is so difficult because you're proving the absence of something. You're not, you know, if you're trying, for example, to work on a uh, a case that's about torture or, or some other violation, you prove that by something that's physical that you show, a medical report that shows the person has been harmed, uh, you know, a, a mental health report that shows that the person has been harmed mentally. But with enforced disappearance, what you're trying to prove is that something doesn't exist as opposed to the fact that it does exist, which must make this even more challenging as kind of a a violation to be able to look for accountability for. Let's start with the question that you mentioned. Libyan law falls short of defining the crime of enforced appearances. There is a law that defines enforced appearances, but it's not, the definition is not in line with uh, the, the definition mentioned in the uh, international convention. So, for example, it doesn't require the uh, state element. It doesn't have the element of that the state is concealing information about the fate of the disappeared. So we have a, a wider definition of enforced disappearance. Doesn't that make it easier for us to work with it? No, it's not. No, it's not wider definition because we are speaking because we are speaking here about international human rights law, and international human rights law speaks to governments. Doesn't speak about uh, doesn't speak about individual criminals. So the state element must exist because if I remove the state element, that I'm removing the responsibility of the state. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. That's a good point. The crucial point here that Libya is not party to the International Convention for the Protection of People Against Enforced Appearances. However, it is a party to the. In- International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which covers generally enforced appearances or arbitrarily detention and arrest and deprivation of uh, the right of person to access to lawyer, family, judicial oversight, all that. Also, in the African Charter, enforced appearances is not mentioned clearly, but same with the RCCPR. It covers generally the right of person to be free from arbitrary detention, uh, physical integrity, uh, right to fair trial. All these are covered under the uh, African Charter and can be used uh, to uh, for different purposes, including, for instance, litigation in the African Commission. I'm conscious that you and I can talk about this for hours, and, and we often do. Um, and I'm also conscious that listening to lawyers talking about the law can get a bit dry. So the other thing we're doing differently in this episode is to talk to a person who is not looking at this question theoretically or professionally, but who has lived through it. Um, it gives us a great privilege to be able to have that access. And we're really, we're really quite honored to have that perspective with us today. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm very looking forward to hear uh, from our guest today. Our guest today um, was introduced to us through a part of LFGL, a Force Appearances Project. Um, which called Combating Enforced Appearances in Libya. This is a project we are doing with Redress and three other NGOs in other African countries with the aim to prevent and eradicate enforced appearances in Africa. It includes some advocacy at the national, regional and international level, uh, practical support to families of the disappeared, and also it has a litigation component. Our guest is one of the people whose case we have submitted to the Human Rights Committee, and we are looking forward to submit more cases to the African Commission for accountability. Jabir Zain is an activist, journalist, and blogger. Jabir Zain's case is a unique case because it involved many violations under the ICCPR. Arbitrary detention, enforced appearances, torture and other ill-treatment, right to fair trial, and he was eventually refooled 
to his country of origin, Sudan. Welcome to Libya Matters, Jabir. Thank you, Ilham, and thank you, Mohammed, for, for this brief introduction. It's an honor to be with you guys. Jabir, maybe I can ask you to start by just telling us a little bit about your about your case, if that's okay. Yeah, definitely. Um, thank you, Ilham. I, I started act- my activism back in 2011, like uh, so many young people dreaming of a better Libya, even if I'm, I'm not uh, born a Libyan with a Libyan nationality or a passport. I lived for 25 years in Libya since I was six years old with my family, studied in Libya, grew up in Libya, and um, it's it's it was always our dreams and uh, our aspiration to have uh, um, a better Libya. I'm not gonna try to put Libya in any kind of stereotype uh, uh, or any kind of uh, specific vision, but I'm just gonna say a better Libya. Like uh, my dream is always to have a better Libya, even on a daily basis. So back to 2011, which I consider an uprising that quickly moved to into a civil war that is continuous continuous until now or continuing until this moment. Uh, with brief interruptions, uh, we started writing online. We started writing against Gaddafi in the beginning, and then um, after the liberation uh, of Libya, if I might call it, uh, we started supporting charity organizations. Uh, uh, then charity organizations evolved into civil society organizations, and I was writing since that time as uh, calling for the seas of war, calling for. Uh, DDR, calling for uh, a w- um, one government, calling for stuff that even back then were, were present, but still I was, I had the vision that uh, conflict is going to happen. I always had this feeling that conflict is going to happen, so we should be prepared for it. Also, uh, my own personal interests, writing about feminism and women's rights and freedom of religion, uh, and writing against racism, being um being black, being a, a foreigner, even if you live in Libya, you will face racism, you'll face xenophobia, you will face all kind of accusations. Um, so I was really active writing, um, uh, protesting. Um, I had the opportunity to, because I was managing a training center, I had the opportunity to uh, give space for other organizations to meet and um, have, a, have a place where they can, like a hub, uh, where they can get together and um, talk about uh, activism and plan for their activities. And then um, I joined the Libyan Center for Freedom of Press uh, in 2015 as a project officer, where I actually I still work with them remotely from Tunisia. And um, I got really popular online in 2015, 2016, writing about women's rights and freedom of religion and other uh, causes that I strongly believe in and strongly support, and writing, also going live on TV or radio, talking uh, openly and freely against the, the actions of militias, and I continue to call them militias until this moment because they are militias, and this got me the wrong kind of attention, obviously. Um, I was planning to leave Libya before I was um, kidnapped, uh, but then, you know, um, life had another uh, decision. And uh, I was participating in an um, event where I was the guest speaker talking about women's rights in Gergarish, in Hairandlus, in Libya, uh, specifically in Tripoli, the capital. And um, I was directly uh, kidnapped after leaving that venue and, uh, and the journey started, yeah. And what do you mean by the journey? I mean, you always hear about people getting kidnapped. I have friends, colleagues, uh, neighbors, uh, people that I hear about who got either killed, kidnapped, uh, imprisoned, 
uh, and then survived, left the country or, or died. Uh, I can even mention names like Abdul Mars Banun. He's still uh, in enforced disappearance for five years now. Uh, pray that he, he's alive and well and he leaves soon. Um, Tawfiq bin Saud was a friend of mine. I met him two months before he was assassinated and killed. And Salah Sairi was a friend of mine. She was killed. Um, Nadir Gadi was a friend of mine. He was uh, kidnapped for three, four, five days, and then he left. He's based in the UK now. I can I can continue. There are other names: um, Salah Angab, Abdul Habil Alam, uh, and I speak uh, mentioning their names. I hope they don't mind that, but most of them are outside the country. Um, so you hear about the, this experience and you talk to people after they leave uh, their imprisonment or their kidnapping and, and, but, and you have these scenarios in your head. But living the experience and having this journey is a completely, completely different thing. So I was really careful. Uh, most of my friends didn't know where I live. Uh, I, I never wrote uh, where I am going or where I'm about to do. Uh, but of course, somebody was there in that event. He had a different intention. He took a photo of me, sent it to this uh, militia, and they kidnapped me. And then, and then the first thought that um, comes to one's mind when when they pull you, put you inside that car, is that I'm gonna die. And at that moment, death is not really a problem because your brain starts to put different scenarios. One is death. Two is imprisonment, that means torture, etc., etc. And three, maybe I'll be released, but I don't know how. Maybe it's going to be a miracle. So death, in the first five, ten minutes, I told myself, no, you're not going to die. You will survive this. And this was a technique that I used during the whole two years um, imprisonment, if I might call it, or, or being forced to disappear, or kidnapped, etc., or detained. Uh, second was the second scenario was I'm gonna be in for a long time, and that was the scenario that my mind prepared me to from the beginning. Because one, I'm not Libyan; I don't have a tribe or a big family or a militia that can uh, support me and get me out quickly. And uh, two, because being a foreigner, I knew that they're gonna put me in a certain stereotype where you are an agent working for foreign countries or you are an atheist trying to. Uh, corrupt the society. So all my, uh, maybe maybe I got this um, this feeling because people were writing this to me online in their comments and sending me messages, threatening me with the same kind of idea. And you know, we there is like a collective mindset in Libya towards certain things. And you could actually say that one, two, three is going to happen, predict that, and it happened actually. So yeah, uh, from the first day, from the first night, actually, uh, I knew it's going to take a long time. And I knew exactly what they will try to frame me in. And uh, I prepared myself for the journey, journey of torture, starvation, uh, my family not knowing anything about me. Uh, and I knew they were not gonna. They will not tell them where I am because it's um, a pattern. It seems to be a pattern uh, that is followed by many, many, many armed groups in in, in Libya. And um, as I said, the journey started, and uh, it's it's a good opportunity to talk about this journey. You know, you, you get you, you obviously were very, very active um, on the ground, and and you you sort of suggested that's why you were targeted, but with. Did, did they ever tell you why they were targeting you or did you know why they were targeting you specifically? Um, other other militias were targeting me for my writing and specifically uh, my activism on the ground protesting for peace. 
and calling for the militias to uh, either leave, uh, because, you know, Tripoli, is, it's a long story. There, there were militias from outside Tripoli, militias from inside Tripoli. Uh, we had Gharghur, we were protesting against militias from outside Tripoli to leave the city, and militias from inside the city to hand down their, their guns, their weapons. Uh, and then in 2014, uh, uh, sorry, we were protesting against Fajr Libya, Libya Dawn operation, and the case was a bit different. We were ca calling for the war to stop because we knew it's going to divide the country. We knew the intentions behind these militias. It wasn't just to kick some militias out and that's it. They had a bigger plan than that. And uh, all of this I was writing with my name, my photo uh, uh, online, and I wasn't writing anonymously. And this is, this is of course, uh, some people consider it as suicide. But I considered it as uh, the right thing to do because I believe in the causes that I'm fighting. And uh, also, I started getting more and more known for writing, uh, supporting women's rights. And you know, this subject is really dangerous to talk about in any Arab country, any Muslim country. And Libya is still considered by many Libyans as a conservative country, uh, even though I disagree to a certain limit. I was considered uh, somebody who wants to corrupt the society, somebody who wants to spread a foreign agenda and manipulate uh, the minds of the people. And of course, uh, once they see such writings online, you will be targeted. Even though this specific militia was not following me, this specific militia was informed about my presence in an event by somebody. So I'm sorry to use this word, but somebody snitched. There was a snitch who, who said, hey, this guy is right there and he is saying one, two, three, and he took a photo of me, sent it to the militia. And actually, this is the most uh, followed, the most deadliest, the most common technique used by militias, informants, snitches, people who are sitting with us, talking with us, eating, drinking with us, playing with us, uh, saying that they share the same thoughts with us, but then they are informants. It just seems like a 1984 novel of George Orwell, how it's a, just a dystopia, you know. Some of you, or maybe even one of you, is wondering, how can I make a difference or push things forward or achieve accountability? Well, it's really quite easy just two clicks away. Go to libyanjustice.org and click on donate to make a one-off donation or to give regularly. There really is no such thing as too little or too much. Your support is crucial to achieving justice in Libya. Thank you very much. But for now, enjoy the episode. Yeah, that's a very eloquent way to paint a very grim reality. Um, maybe, yeah, I obviously don't want to, to get into too much detail with some of the stuff that might be difficult for you to talk about, but... I think what I find so fascinating about you and is, is how positively you still talk about your experience. It feels like you've you've had a journey. And, and I think that I like the term that you use journey because, you know, a journey takes you to a destination. And I feel that the destination is, is really unexpected given the journey you've been through. But I want to get to that a little bit, a little bit later. Um, but I, I want to sort of understand or help our audience understand a little bit more I guess we talked about how it felt at the beginning of your of your journey when you were initially um, abducted and and the thought process you you went through, but as it unfolded, uh, were were charges put to you? Were did you know why you're officially why you're being held, or were you left in the dark for a while? Like what happened in terms of figuring out why they had you and what might come out of this process? Um, the first night, uh, they took my social media accounts, usernames, and passwords, so I knew they're gonna be targeting what I write online. They're not going to ask about me or know who I am. They'll just see my my uh, social media presence. The next day, uh, and for the next four or five days, the investigations were, or the interrogation, if you want to call it, 
um, were like, uh, why do you write this? Who tells you to write this? Um, uh, what do you do working with the Libyan Center for Freedom of Press or other organization? Who runs what? Who manages what? Where the money comes from? Uh, what countries uh, support these NGOs, etc., etc.? So uh, in the beginning, there was no torture. Uh, I was maintaining my statements. Uh, these are my personal opinions. I write with my personal name and photo. If I had any bad uh, intentions, I would write anonymously, like thousands and thousands of people who write anonymously. And by the way, they asked me about some uh, bloggers, non-bloggers who write anonymously uh, uh, with fake names, and they, they asked me if I knew them or not. I knew them, but I didn't give the names. Uh, so it quickly moved from this, um, let, let's, let, let us give him three, four days of good treatment and then completely switch to torture and threat, threats, family threats. We're going to do this to your sisters. We're going to do that to your mother. We're going to do that to your brother. Save your brother because he's already here. Uh, we brought him, so save him. He has three kids. Your sister has three kids too, so save her from what's going to happen to her. And I was telling them, I'm a Muslim, and these opinions are my opinions. I'm an activist. You can ask about me. I work with this organization. You can ask about me. Uh, if you need anything, documents, etc., you can ask it from the, from the center or go to the center, and they will give it to you. We are completely transparent. But of course not. Uh, the accusations uh, started maybe from the second, third day that maybe you're not a Muslim. Just say it, uh, express it. And then quickly move to no, you are not a Muslim and you're an atheist. And then quickly move to no, don't say again that you're a Muslim. And if you say it again, we will not... Uh, and if you, don't, if you don't say that you're an atheist, we will not stop torturing you or we will do this and that to your family. So atheism was the first uh, accusation. And I'm not. And if I was, I would have said it. I don't have. I don't. I don't mind saying that. Uh, if it's some something that I believe in, but I'm a Muslim. I have nothing against other religions, other choices. Uh, I, I changed my my statements uh, when the torture started, and when they specifically told me that we brought your brother. He is in the building in the in the next room. Speak or else, and or else is a problem. Even if you are strong, and even if you know that uh, they will not hurt your family. Uh, even if there is a 1% only, 0.001% only that they might hurt a loved one, it's, it's a torture, it's a nightmare, especially when they take you back to your cell and they leave you in the dark, uh, you don't eat for days, you don't have any clothes, you don't have any contact with the outside world, you just, I mean, you have your, the, the same clothes that you were, you were wearing, I don't mean that you were completely uh, without clothes. Um, and uh, you just start making a deal. So the deal is, it's a quick deal that I made with myself. Okay, I'm going to save my family. I'm already in. What else they can do to me? And hopefully things will go in the right direction. If they transfer me to the attorney's office, the general attorney's office, or to a prosecutor or to a judge, I might have a lawyer, and then I will say the truth, say what I said in the beginning before I changed my statements. So once I changed my statements, they took a video of me saying these uh, false statements about myself, which I'm completely innocent of, um, took me back to the cell, and then another phase of the journey started. And in this, in this initial period... Did you know where you were? Did your family know where you were? I didn't know where I was uh, from these people for a couple of weeks, maybe one month or more. But then I, I started to collect information. What happens is that the guards, they speak on the phone 
or the interrogators or these militia members, they speak on the phone, and then they go like, uh, yes, I'm at the location. Yes, next to uh, this university or that mosque. And of course, I am uh, I'm the son of Tripoli, so I know these streets, these areas very well. And even if they try to uh, do this on purpose to let me know that I'm, I'm in a different place, if one do it on purpose, the others will eventually make a mistake and mention an area close to where I was. So I, I started collecting the dots, collecting the little pieces, and I knew that I was in a specific area, but I didn't know who are these people. After some time, uh, during the interrogation, they left me without blindfolding me because they blindfold you during the whole thing and everything except when they take you back to your cell they they take the blindfolds off but in during the interrogation even if you want to go to the toilet or uh, they take you out of the office for some time for them to talk uh, secretly you are always blindfolded and um, I managed at one time when they took the blindfolds off in an office because they want to take a video of me and of course they're not going to take a video of me with the blindfolds off on, I mean, they want to show to that they are doing a good job and they are legitimate and they are under the GNA, etc., etc. Uh, so they just left me for one minute, and that was enough for me to look back and find the logo and the name of this group. Um, and that's it. That was enough for me to know that, that I'm actually not in a militia, but I'm actually in a group, an armed group that I still call a militia, but it is affiliated with the GNA. And that was uh, sad, but at the same time, it gave me some hope that maybe, maybe somebody uh, would have a different say in this and they will give me my rights to see my family, to have a lawyer, not to be tortured, to have clothes at least, uh, to have good food, and maybe at least uh, I can have visits. You know, that was, uh, that was at least one phone call because I requested them, I, I asked them, can I please just make one phone call to my mother, tell her that I'm fine, I'm completely fine, I'm being treated well, and this will take time and I'll be out maybe. But they refused. I asked that a couple of times and they refused. And, and so during this whole period, your family were utterly unaware of, of, where, of where you are? Yes, uh, in, the, in, the, in the first uh, couple of weeks. But I was lucky when I was kidnapped. Uh, I had three of my friends with me. They were taken with me to the same location and released uh, in the same night. Uh, a, in a location different from the location where we, where we were. We were in Highlanders, and they were released in Amr al-Mukhtar separately. Uh, they knew that they wanted me, because I'm known, I'm a known activist. They went to my family and told them one, two, three happened, but they didn't know the location. They told them the story, but they didn't know the location. So one of my friends saw a guy, he was similar. Uh, they started asking around and looking for this guy. He was like familiar, his face was familiar. And that, these, these things might be seen as luck, but I believe in miracles and these my story for me is, is a miracle. Personally, I believe in it because there were things that happened that were so um, not coincidences. They were like uh, plotted, like God did a certain things to help me out for some reason. Uh, the familiar face in the beginning, the guards who helped me later communicate with my family, uh, the way that I got out, deported. Uh, even the intelligence later told me that you're lucky to be alive and lucky to... To, to be here today after what, what, what these militias, they want to do to you. So my family got to know where I am a few weeks later by contacting uh, certain people. And they said, okay, we'll try to, to ask around. And they asked around. In the beginning, they said, they told them, yes, he is with us. 
and uh, my family brought me some clothes and some um, shampoo and toothpaste, etc. And uh, uh, in a couple of days, they took all of this stuff from me, gave it back to my family. I knew about this later when I got out and told them, no, this is not the person. You guys are looking for Jabir Zain. This guy is called Jubran. And they gave them a different name. And I remember uh, my brother, when I, when I left prison, he told me, uh, when they told me that, I thought that you're dead. He didn't tell my mom. He went home, sat in shock and said, okay, now what? Now what? In the beginning, we had hope. So now he is dead. He is, uh, his body is thrown somewhere. And now what? What am I going to tell my mom? He had a responsibility, a huge responsibility on his shoulders to report back to my mom. And what am I going to tell her? So, and then we didn't, we didn't speak for another three, four months. And that was, uh, that was completely a miracle or another luck because some somebody helped me talk to my family on the phone uh done as a favor done as i don't know what uh because they were completely forbidden from doing so i mean i i think what you describe is i i struggle with luck or miracles because i just think it's your resilience but um it's it's a it's 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 incredible and and what this highlights for me so clearly is how powerful enforced disappearance is at collectively punishing people you know it's it's one of the it's really one of the very few violations or crimes that hurts the person involved but is also intended really to to punish and to uh, violate the families of them their loved ones because the sort of this utter inability to know what happened or to know the fate of the person or to get you know information that's incorrect and so leaves you um leaves you in agony is, is precisely what this is designed for, right? It's designed by states to create a sense of terror, if you like, in a community and to really collectively um, punish people for the perceived wrongdoings of an individual. Um, and I think you you paint that picture so clearly of, of how this impacts, um, not just on you, but on your family and also the, the power that that has on you. Because it, again, that is, you know, unfortunately sort of textbook, torture techniques of, of, you know, playing on your emotional state by threatening your loved ones to, to get you to, to acquiesce. And, and I think that is what sometimes gets lost when we just refer to a situation like this as, yeah, yeah, another case of kidnapping, which is what we're so used to hearing in, in Libya. And when you take a step back and you think it's not just that person that they kidnapped or disappeared or abducted or whatever word you use really doesn't matter at this point. It's the impact that that has on that person on their family, on their community, and on the, the wider society that, you know, that this state of fear creates. And, and I think that's why, you know, for, for me, and I can't even begin to sound important in this conversation, but the power of this violation and why it is so important to, to deal with it. Um, and I, we're, I'm just want to really, Jabir, I, I can only imagine how unpleasant it is to keep reliving this experience, but we're so grateful that you are doing that with us. Yeah, it's com it's completely fine. It's completely fine. I I you know as I told you, it's uh, it's all about the mindset. I wanna, I don't want to speak much about me or mindset and brag about it, but it's really I was lucky to choose this mindset from the from day one that helped me to um, go through this journey positively. And I'm actually it's my duty to be here today and talk about this for people to know more about what is happening, but also to give any kind of um, um, idea idea about what people 
who go through kidnappings go through. Because as you said, in many, many reports, international reports, local reports, we are just numbers. I'm not a number. I'm not just another person who got kidnapped that should be added to the list. We have families. We have loved ones. I had a girlfriend back then that went crazy. We have uh, um, we had ambitions and we still have ambitions and dreams and they just steal you. And before I let you continue, I, th I think you wanted to say something. I would just say that if the death of a loved one is the worst thing in the world, then the enforced disappearance of a loved one is worse, even worse than death. Because death, you know that this person is, has died, you have the body, you bury the body, you can visit the body, you, can, you, you know that this is, this is life, this is how life is, we are all gonna die. But when you don't even have an idea about physically where this person is, where his body is, how is he doing? I, I found messages in my inbox in my, when I got back, uh, left, left prison and managed to access my, my, my Facebook messenger again, especially my Facebook because uh, I'm very active on Facebook. I found messages from, from, uh, from my girlfriend, from my family members, from people that they didn't even know me. They, they were speaking to me directly as if I am there because they were so, they were going crazy and the only way, the only thing is to pray for me, but also to go online and write. Say like, if you are there, we love you. Um, are you eating well? Are you cold? Are you, are they torturing you? We love you, we're waiting for you. I found a message from my, my younger brother. And uh, he said, I cannot eat well, I cannot drink, I, I cannot survive this. And, and I'm just thinking, I cannot function. It, it, he, he doesn't express such feelings, such emotions. Even now I'm out. But uh, it was so surreal to be alive, to come back from death, and find these messages from your loved ones. It's just amazing. Hi, it's me again. Just to highlight why the crime of enforced disappearance is so dangerous, because it is frequently used as a strategy to spread terror within society. The feeling of insecurity and the fear it generates is not limited to the close relatives of the disappeared only, but also affects communities and societies as a whole. Relatives of the disappeared are at particular risk and often experience low mental anguish given they don't know whether their relatives are still alive, where they are being held, or how they are being treated. Not knowing if their loved one will ever return often leaves their relatives living in limbo. Families searching for the truth are often exposed to great danger and retaliations from the government or militias acting on behalf of the government. It is important also to mention that the disappeared person is usually at high risk of torture and other ill treatment since they are placed completely outside the protection of the law and that's why a victim's lack of access to legal remedies puts them in a terrifying situation. Who is at risk and face this serious crime? It's usually human rights defenders, activists, witnesses and lawyers. Just a little bit about the work that we do in LFGL. In partnership with Redress and other NGOs, we are working on a three-year project on enforced appearances in Africa. And the aim behind this project is to reduce the pattern of this serious crime and for the African Commission also to draft a convention that will tackle this problem in Africa. We already submitted few cases for litigation in this project before international regional mechanisms. And of course, we are happy to connect, work and represent either victims of uh, the crime of enforced appearances or their families. You were, of course, resilient and you were persistent, but also when you were speaking, you mentioned about the efforts uh, that your family carried out to try to find your location or your whereabouts. Uh, can you give us or can you tell us about what they did? 
Yeah. Uh, so in the beginning, of course, after they learned about my kidnapping, they uh, started calling everybody that they thought has influence in the city or even from outside the city. We know that there are other cities that has influence inside Tripoli, like Misrata, for example. So um, they were contacting everybody that they knew and telling them, please, uh, this name, this person uh, is a family member and he got, uh, he is disappeared and we don't know where is he. So they started calling uh, different kind of groups. Uh, most of them said, we, no, we don't have him. Uh, then it, they tried to contact organizations that were, had access into some prisons like Rada. And uh, a family friend uh, went and checked the list, checked, asked about my name. Not, I'm not, I wasn't there. Uh, my uh, uh, brother-in-law, through a friend, got to know where I, where I was. In the beginning, they told him, yes, he's here. And through him, they managed to uh, send me this, uh, bring me this uh, bag, a small bag with clothes and toothpaste, shampoo, small stuff. And they were happy because they knew that at least now, from all over Libya, from all over Tripoli, and even outside Tripoli, we, 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 we managed to find where is he for now. And this is a great thing, you know, just target or, or um, finding where is this person is a great thing in the beginning when somebody's get kidnapped. It, you, it gives you hope. And then um, they said, uh, no, we're not going to let you uh, see him. So my mom went every day for four days, as I remember, four or five days every day from uh, the morning till the afternoon and sat in front of the gate of this militia uh, group asking for, for asking them to see me. This, she said, I know my son is inside. I can feel that he's inside. We have information that he's inside. We just want to see him. In the beginning, they ignored her. But then when she was sitting there protesting, this is kind of a, a peaceful protest, sit-down protest that my mom, who is a hero, uh, did, uh, the neighbors, uh, people next to the place, started uh, recognizing her uh, every day. And they spoke to her and to the guards and saying, what is happening? If her son is here, let her see him. And then they found that this is going to make a problem for them. And then one guy, an, um, an official or somebody who's responsible from this group, went out, talked to her, said, listen, your son is not here. He is in uh, Rada. Uh, and go to Sheikh Fulan, Sheikh somebody, and ask about him. He will tell you, yes, he is with us. So he is not here. And then um, my mom stopped uh, going there. So th these were the, the first techniques they were, they were doing. My my other family members sat with people affiliated with this group and told them, okay, you have him, just um, let us hire a lawyer for him or transfer him to the prosecutor's office or tell, her, tell us if he is well or not. And they said, no, he is not with us. He, we don't have him. It was just a similarity in the name, a similar name. It was a mistake and we're sorry, we don't have him. My family then went and hired a lawyer. The lawyer went to the prosecutor's office, the journalist's office, and they contacted, they sent messages to different groups in Tripoli. They all replied quickly, saying that, no, we don't have Jabir Zain with us. This specific group did not reply in the first two, three weeks, as I remember. Then they sent them another letter saying, reply, uh, we sent you um, a specific request. Do you have him or not? And then they replied via phone. They didn't want to write an uh, official letter. They contacted the attorney's office, one of the prosecutors, and said, no, we don't have him. And then uh, a prosecutor's office, a uh, prosecutor member uh, or an official that was in touch with my family and knew about this bag, this, this small bag of clothes and how what happened in the beginning, especially that the lawyer uh, sent a complaint saying that, listen, uh, 
they took the bag, then they took the bag again out, and there is something fishy. So um, he contacted them and said, listen, uh, we need a clear um, explanation of what's happening. We knew that he is inside. We have eyewitnesses. And once they mentioned eyewitnesses, these people started uh, freaking out. So they said, okay, let us check the records and get back to you. They called them back and they said, ah, um, yes, uh, we had him. And, and now we trans and he was transferred. He was transferred to the intelligence. So we don't have him anymore. They took me out of that place into another camp in Tajura to hide me away from the, the, the spotlight. So my family continued contacting people. We call it Wasta in Libya. You know, if you have a middleman, somebody who can help, somebody with influence who can help, they started calling people, going to Maktab al the janitor's office, hiring this lawyer, uh, and then co- talking uh, publicly, of Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, writing online. Uh, they did everything they can just not to release me. No, they just said, okay, you have him. Put him in somewhere legit- a leg- legitimate prison where we can visit him and he will be out. Uh, we, he will be. Uh, he will stand in front of a judge. The judge will uh, either um, decide if he's guilty or innocent, and we don't have a problem with that. He chose this path, and he will. He will face the consequences. But at least we want to know his whereabouts. Or and and even my brother said, if he is dead, give us the body. Like okay, he might be dead. We want to. Know, we want the body. That's it. And of course, they refuse to cooperate. And I think Jabber the. You know, we could speak for hours about the definition of enforced disappearances or what the components are or what it means or the consequences and never do it justice the way you just have explained. You know, you've picked up on on everything that Mohammed and I tried to do theoretically at the beginning. You've you've highlighted the fact that it's about disappearing the person without information, uh, creating a sense of doubt in the family. It's about uh, not telling the family about the fate of that person, not knowing when or if or ever you're going to go out and and you know what you describe at the very end is, is precisely the, the the point of an enforced disappearance is, is to remove someone from the protection of the law it's to say you know what we're not even dignifying you with a legal process we are taking you out and we're dealing with you outside the world no one knows where you are no one knows what happens to you and we will deal with you that way and you know some of the demands you say your family were making about well at the very least take him into a proper process and we can have a, a trial and we can have a judge rule is 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 kind of the is kind of the point of an enforced experience is to is to eliminate that and and I can only um, I can only thank you for saying it so much better than we tried to say it at the beginning because you explained it um, so clearly and maybe we'll try to um, sort of just maybe I always like to ask people there's a question that you wanted me to ask you Jabber that we didn't ask you so many questions but um, I just continuously I cannot stop thinking about the people that I left behind. Uh, in those places, you know, and then maybe the question that we should all ask to each other is when this is going to stop or how we can stop this when you have um, government bodies that are directly affiliated with armed groups, militias who do this or practice this on a daily basis. And it's just um, it's, it's, it's a weird feeling that, yes, I'm out, I'm happy, but I am continuously, um, not in a bad way, like uh, in, uh, negatively affecting my psychology, no, but I'm continuously reminded by uh, how lucky I am to survive and hopefully how, how the, the rest will be lucky to leave soon. Because it's when you live with other people in such situations, you bond and in hunger and starvation and misery and um, lack of hope, torture, um, in the winter, 
we beg them to give us something to, to, to keep us warm. In the summer, we beg them to uh, let us out just for like one hour just to see the sun. Uh, and now, I, I, talking about this, I'm so grateful to God and to my family members and to everybody who helped get me out because it's something that I wouldn't wish even to those people who kidnapped me. Uh, I, I, w- I would wish that they get a fair trial. I, don't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't wish this to anybody. Uh, but the question that keeps on like coming to my mind, are we doing enough to help the people back in the prison, you know, back in these kidnapped places, back in these uh, s- uh, secret prisons, secret hidings? And other than that, um, uh, the rest is just um, is, is, is a process that Libya that has to take to reach um, to what other countries, uh, first world countries specifically, has reached uh, justice, la transitional justice and uh, peace. It's a matter of time, but are we doing enough now? This is the question that I keep asking myself always. We should not be relying on luck, um, that you felt like you were lucky to be released and you hope the others will be as lucky. I think what, you're absolutely right that we need to make sure that this is not a matter of luck and it's a matter of a system and a process that people are released. Um, and so we, we as LFJL, thank you so much for allowing us to to work on, with you on your case. And, and hopefully that might be a very significant step in in, adju- in adjusting the responsibility of the state um, and, and what they should be doing. I should I should thank you. Um, I'm not saying this because I'm hosted by you, but I, I really appreciate all the efforts since day one, since I met you, Ilham, and uh, also the first time I spoke to Muhammad. He is um, uh, very hardworking, very dedicated to what he's doing. Uh, I heard about him even before I, I speak to him. Uh, but you guys as a team, um, I found uh, all the, um, the respect that I, that I was looking for. It's not many people contacted me after I left prison or I left uh, Libya, uh, journalists, uh, known TV channels, uh, international organizations, but uh, uh, you guys were very respectful. You knew the risks, you knew how to give me my time. Uh, we spoke for days and days and days, uh, me and Muhammad to try to cover this. And uh, he keeps in touch, you keep in touch. And I think this kind of support group uh, or support um, uh, circle where you have your family, uh, organizations uh, genuinely, not just to get funding or just to be known, no, but just genuinely care about your case and Libya and other cases, uh, friends, um, job opportunities, uh, resettlement of opportunities, and then you can have this cycle of, of support to victims of for disappearance so that they can move on uh, with their life and be productive uh, citizens. So uh, I thank you guys for the great job that you're doing. The podcast itself is an amazing idea and um, I'm happy to be part of it. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying Libya Matters, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This will help us get discovered and to keep growing. To let us know what you think or to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please contact us on our Facebook page at Libya Matters or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. Libya Matters is produced by Lawyers for Justice in Libya. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Libyan Justice. This season of Libya Matters was hosted by me, Ilham Saudi, Marwa Mohammed, and Mohammed Al Misiri. It is produced by Tarek Al Miri. The people who put season two of Libya Matters together are Finbar Anderson, Zaira Edwards, Mayad Al Makki, Mohammed Al Misiri. Elise Fletcher, Nada Kiswanson, Marwa Mohammed, Tim Molyneux, and me, Ilham Saudi. This episode of Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with international media support, IMS.